0: Last week we went from John chapter 1 and verse 39 and up until the beginning of chapter 2 it covers the six days that lead up to the seventh day which is when the marriage in Cana took place. What we considered on those six days just to give a brief recap was that verses 19 to 28 of John chapter 1 they related to the first day of the the seven days. And on that day, uh, priests and Levites had been sent out by the Sanhedrin to observe John the Baptist at uh, the River Jordan at Bethabara, And uh, they were there basically to interrogate him, to try and find out who he was or who he claimed to be. He denied that he was the Christ. He denied that he was the reappearance of Elijah. He denied that he was the the promised prophet of Israel. But he did affirm that he was the one referred to in Isaiah 40 and verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he said that there is actually one amongst you that you do not know. And so although he was obviously the center of attention To those who were interrogating him, he was seeking even then to deflect attention away from himself to someone else. And so the Lord was observing all that happened on that first day. And then on the second day... Again, the Lord is present at the Jordan and John points him out as the all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And uh, John refers back to when he had baptized the Lord Jesus Christ. Because probably something like a a month and a half before these events in John chapter 1, the Lord had been baptized by John and the Spirit had descended on the Lord and the Father had affirmed, this is my beloved Son. And then, of course, the Lord was led into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. And now in John chapter 1, he has made his way back up to the Jordan. And this is where we are uh, at this time. That was... uh, On day two, then on day three, again, the Lord is there and John once more identifies him in the presence of two of John the Baptist's own disciples. And they obviously want to know more about this person that John has identified. And so they went with the Lord and they did an overnight with him. And obviously they learnt tremendous things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So that was on day three. And then on day four, uh, we learn that one of those two disciples was Andrew. And the first thing that he did was he went and he got his brother Simon. And uh, he doesn't say, I think we have found the Messiah. He is quite upfront and he says, we have found the Messiah. And so Andrew brings Simon to uh, the Lord. The Lord renames him Cephas, which is Peter. And so Andrew and Peter begin to follow the Lord, as does the other disciple. And most people would say that the other disciple was actually John, who was the author of the gospel. So at the end of day four, the tally of disciples has gone to three. Uh, Then the following day, which is day five, and that covers verses 43 through to 51, the Lord begins to head north towards Galilee. And en route, he meets Philip and he calls him to follow him. And Philip, a bit like uh, Andrew, decides, I want to get somebody else involved here. And he gets Nathaniel uh, and tells him, we have found the promised Messiah. Uh, Nathaniel initially is pretty skeptical If I could put it that way. But after he has an exchange with the Lord. He openly declares. Thou art the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So on day five. The tally of disciples has risen from three up until five. Day six. I explained last week, we believe that that occurs between the end of John chapter 1 and the beginning of John chapter 2. And I explained the reason that we think there is a a day where we get no details is that In verse 1 of chapter 2. And it says. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana. So the marriage is the third day. What that's referring back to. Are the last recorded events. And that goes back to the fifth day. Which is the events with Philip and Nathaniel. So there's a, a silent day in between. So I hope you can follow that. But that is how you get the six days. And we then come to the seventh day. Which is the actual marriage itself. And I uh, looked, as I uh, said last week, uh, under a series of headings. The first was the run-up, and I've just given you a resume of the run-up to Uh, the wedding and then the second heading was the rejoicing and I explained that in the first two verses of John chapter 2 the word marriage is mentioned twice and there are reasons for rejoicing at a marriage of course you have the bride and the groom who are being united in marriage and that's an occasion for uh, great rejoicing and of course the friends and the family of the bride and the groom are also there and they are filled with rejoicing but I explained that there was another reason why I think there would have been rejoicing. And that was that the Lord himself had been away from home for perhaps one and a half to two months. And he is being reunited at the wedding with his mother and possibly other members of the family. So that again would have been a reason for rejoicing. And then in verses three to five, we looked at the realization. There was a a potential looming crisis uh, people were looking for wine, and Mary had realized that the wine had run out, and so she mentions it to the Lord Jesus and uh, I said possibly the reason she mentioned to him was that whilst he was her son in human terms, she would have also remembered what Gabriel said at the Annunciation that this is the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, and so perhaps she thought that somehow Jesus would be able to specially resolve the situation. And I explained that when he replied to her, woman, he was not being impolite. He was not being cold. I said that that word woman could perhaps be better uh, translated in English as ma'am. And when I hear the word ma'am, I always think of the queen. Ma'am, the guests are ready to be received. Ma'am, all the preparations are ready for whatever. And so he was simply using that terminology to bring it to Mary. That from now on, his heavenly father's business was going to take precedence over her human priorities. And that's why he didn't refer to her as mother but as woman and I explained of course that he used that term again which was on the cross when he said woman behold thy son he was again being very uh, thoughtful in respect of Mary he was committing her into the care of the disciple John because at that time his siblings were not converted and so he wanted her to be in the care of a true believer and so uh There was this double realization, first of all, on Mary's part, that there's a problem with the wine. And then, secondly, the realization that the heavenly priorities were going to be to the fore where Jesus Christ was concerned. So that took us up to the end of verse 5. So we've had the run-up, the rejoicing, the realization... Our next heading covers verses 6 and 9, and we continue with the R's, and the heading is the Resolution, Resolution, and this is verses 6 through to 9. So reverently speaking, if you like, the ball is now in the Lord's court. And again, reverently speaking, he moves into what I would call miracle mode. Uh, He sees in verse 6 that there were six water pots of stone. And these would have been at the door of the house. Uh, These were common uh, in Jewish households. These would have been used for purification purposes of people coming into the house. And they are actually very big Uh, Because it says that they hold two or three firkins apiece. Well, a firkin is about nine gallons, roughly. So you're talking about something like 27 to 30 gallons of water would have been in each of these stone jars. So, what's the resolution? Well, first of all, the Lord simply says to the serpents, fill them up with water. And they do, they fill it up to the brim. And then in verse 8, he gives them another instruction. He says, draw some out and take it to the governor, who would be sort of the the head waiter. So there was nothing spectacular, if you like, about uh, the, the resolution. It was simply the Lord spoke, he gave instructions, and the servants obeyed. And so we then find in verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. The head waiter, he tastes this, and it is obviously very sweet to the taste buds. It is absolutely beautiful uh, wine. And he immediately sends for the bridegroom to... Uh, tell him about this wonderful wine. Now, why did he call for the bridegroom? Well, you see, in those days, the bridegroom was actually financially responsible for the catering. Uh, I'm glad that that custom didn't hang on till when I was married uh, 32 years ago, or when Ray and Sue uh, was married uh, 50 years ago. Uh, the, the, the poor bridegroom would have had to pay for the catering. But the head waiter, he Brings the bridegroom over and he says, this is absolutely wonderful wine. So the resolution is very simply, the Lord told the servants, fill them up and then draw it out. And that was the result. In verse 10, we find the response. We've had the resolution, now the response. And it says, uh, the, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now. The the head waiter is totally surprised by all of this because what had happened is totally contrary to whatever the norm was in those days. Uh, Normally at the the wedding, the best of wine uh, would have been at the start, but then as the people perhaps imbibed a little more and more of it, then... The, uh, the rough stuff would have been brought out and the, presumably the assumption was they wouldn't be able to taste the difference and yet they would be given the poor wine at the last but this was totally inverted the good wine was being kept to the last so the response was simply surprise on the part of the head waiter and then in verse 11 we have what I call the revelation This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. We don't like to know whether the bridegroom was really aware of all that was happening. You know, uh, he was probably busy with other things, probably didn't recognize that there was a a looming crisis of the wine running out. And so he was probably surprised uh, when the head waiter uh, brought him over uh, to to taste this wine and so on he probably maybe then was slightly surprised by what he discovered but he was still in the dark as to how it had all come about but we know that the disciples would have been aware as were the servants also who had followed the instructions of the lord so where the disciples were concerned, this was truly a revelation of the Lord's divine mm-hmm. glory. Their faith, which was still fairly fledgling at that stage, would have been affirmed and strengthened. And the purpose of the Lord's uh, miracles was in some degree to affirm and strengthen the faith of those who believed. But there was also another reason for the Lord carrying out these miracles. And it was really directed towards disbelieving or unbelieving Jews. Because in John 5.36, the Lord says this, But I have greater witness than that of John. And remember, John the Baptist did no miracles, whereas the Lord has been doing them. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So this revelation was to the disciples. It would have been a strengthening of their faith. It would have been a confirmation of things that they had already previously believed in their heart that this is the promised Messiah. It would also have been A revelation to the servants, for instance, who had filled the water pots up and then drawn off the good wine. So that's what we learn from the text uh, that we have looked at. So what can we actually apply personally to ourselves from these verses this morning? And verses 6 to 9 was the resolution as we uh, Give the heading I think there is great spiritual significance here in these particular verses uh, the, these jars and these water they were for purifying for uh, cleaning off if you like the dust and dirt of everyday living as you went into somebody's house they, they symbolized something to be desired in the real terms, it was getting rid of the dirt. But spiritually, of course, they symbolized the desire for cleansing from sin. The thing about the water pots and the water was they had to be constantly repeated. Every time you came to somebody's house and so on, you would have to get this cleansing done. Think even of the, uh, the Last Supper uh, when you know, the disciples met uh, most likely uh, in the house of uh, John Mark and his mother, uh, and they were going to uh, have the, uh, the Lord's Supper instituted and so on. And nobody had washed the feet, nobody had cleansed the feet on the way in. And probably the disciples were looking at each other saying, well, I'm not going to do it. And eventually the Lord gave a real practical demonstration of humble servitude when he got down and he washed the feet of his own disciples. And of course Peter objected to it. Oh, you'll never do that for me. And the Lord said, you know, What I'm doing now you won't understand, but you'll know hereafter. And, of course, it symbolized the cleansing from sin that would come through the sacrificial servanthood of the Lord going to Calvary. So, uh, as I say, the uh, ritual uh, with the water pots and the water, it had to be constantly repeated. It was indicative if you like, to cleansing from sin. But of course, it was totally ineffective. And verses 7 and 8, divine intervention was needed for a real change to happen. And it's exactly the same when it comes to salvation from sin. Human endeavor and our best efforts will not cut it when it comes to cleansing from sin. Observing rules and rituals will never absolve us from the guilt and condemnation of our sin. Uh, And Paul makes that very plain in Titus 3. Paul was a man who prior to his conversion, he was relying on the fact that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and he was a Pharisee and he was meticulous in all the rituals that he observed and all of the rest of it. But having been converted he realized just how absolutely worthless those particular things were. And he was the one that the Lord moved to write in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing and cleansing from our sin is at the time that we are spiritually regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit. It, and that is directly through divine intervention and so when it comes to uh, salvation uh, in Jonah uh, which we looked at last year when I was here in Jonah 2 and verse 9 Jonah declared salvation is of the Lord and it's a work that nobody knows how it happens or when it happens As as the Lord said in John 3 to Nicodemus, you know, uh, the the work of the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes, but you know that it has happened. Uh, And so uh, in this uh, 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 change and so on, they, they didn't know how it had happened, but they knew that it had happened. You know, when people are converted... A tremendous change should be evident in their lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we read this in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What is this treasure that we have in earthen vessels? It is the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Just as the water uh, was poured into those stone water jars, at conversion, the Lord pours his Holy Spirit into your life and into my life. And our bodies, which prior to conversion were, if you like, vessels to dishonor, should now be evidently vessels to honor. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you? We should be living examples of the new wine that has been poured into a new vessel. Prior to conversion, the vessel that we had was a slave to sin, and uh, we obeyed Satan, whether we like to uh, acknowledge it or not. But now, having been converted, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And it is into this new creation that God pours his Holy Spirit. It's a divine intervention when we are saved. And I believe that this resolution, which was the water being changed into wine, is a picture of what happens to us at our conversion. And it demonstrates the total sovereignty of our God. Bishop J.C. Ryle, commenting uh, on these verses in John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, he said this, We learn from these verses the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are told of a miracle which he wrought at the marriage feast when the wine failed. By a mere act of will, he changed water into wine and so supplied the need of all the guests. We are not told of any outward visible action which preceded or accompanied it. It is not said that he touched the water pots. It is not said that he commanded the water to change its qualities or that he prayed to the Father in heaven. He simply willed the change and it took place. It is a comfortable thought that the same almighty power of will which our Lord here displayed is still exercised on behalf of his believing people. If he wills their salvation and the daily supply of all their spiritual need they are as safe and well provided for as if they saw him standing by them. Christ's will is as mighty and effectual as Christ's deed. So I believe this event demonstrates the tremendous sovereignty of our God in the salvation of souls. When our Water pots, if you like, the interior is changed through the pouring into it of God's holy Spirit. I would be wrong to automatically assume that everyone here this morning is a Christian. Perhaps everyone is. But if not, there is a responsibility upon you to seek God's forgiveness and His salvation. And the Lord says in Hebrews eleven six, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So early or even late in life, if you're not a Christian, diligently seek him. And it says that he is a rewarder of such as seek him. And, of course, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And while he may be found and while he is near is while we're still alive and whilst we're still in our right mind. Then we should seek the Lord. So that's what I believe we can learn from the resolution. Can we learn anything then from the response? We uh, noted that the head waiter had detected and noted a great change uh, in what was drawn out of the water pots. I've said that that is a, a picture of conversion in the life of a believer. So just like the head waiter, are people aware of how Christ has changed us? Is there a different, diff, diff, definite difference between what we er were, and what we now profess to be. I think I've been on some of this wine by the sound of it. Forgive me. Yeah. Do people detect a definite difference between what we were and what we are now? Do they metaphorically taste a difference in our lives? You know, uh, I'm sure we can maybe think of some people we know. And tragically, when we meet them, we think well, it's, it's a sort of bitter experience, you know. Uh, and we have to, of course, uh, be compassionate in our thoughts towards them and so on. But yeah, there are people who sadly do leave a bitter taste when we meet them. But is that what we do when we meet other people? Or do they taste the sweetness of the fact that we belong to Christ? Are our lives... Flavored and characterized by the fruit of the spirit. Are our lives demonstrating that do we do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true vine? So that's what I believe we can learn from the response. The head waiter detected the obvious change. Do others detect the obvious change? In our lives, And then in verse 11 we saw the revelation. And of course the striking thing about this was that this event manifested forth the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite simply, do our lives manifest forth the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? We are to be his ambassadors, his spokespersons his representatives, his witnesses here? And is your life and is my life manifesting forth his glory? In other words, are we pointers that help people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we sadly maybe hinder people in coming to that knowledge? Because every true conversion to Christ is a miracle. And we should be manifesting forth his glory in the light of the miracle that he has wrought in our lives. Let me just bring some closing thoughts then as we end our study on that was the week that was. Initially, I mentioned that the Lord was baptized by John some one and a half months, if you like, prior to these events and I mentioned that the uh, place Bethabara it means house of passage and as you know our Lord uh, occupies three specific roles he is a prophet he's a priest and he's a king and up until his baptism in the river Jordan he, he had been living predominantly if you like a secular life but now he was about to pass from that into his prophetic role. And that's why I believe when he was baptized in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit descended and the uh, voice of the Father confirmed that this is my beloved son, that this, if you like, marked his commissioning into the role of prophet. And this was the Passage from secular uh, to sacred, if you like. And so he went through that uh, in the Jordan. And then he went down into the wilderness where he was tempted. And now he's passing up again past Bathabora. And again, it's symbolic. He's leaving that area uh, to head to Galilee where the ministry is really going to kick off, if I could put it that way. And that's why this was the beginning of miracles here at the marriage in Cana. So this whole these whole events mark the transition of the Lord into his prophetic role. And it was symbolized initially by that water baptism. But in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 20, uh, we read of an incident quite late in his ministry. And uh, this is what we read in verse 20 of Matthew 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, we are able. (coughs) The Lord was asked if he could grant special privileges to the sons uh, of uh, that were mentioned. And uh, he says, yeah, well, there's just something else that has to happen. I have another baptism to go through. And of course, the baptism that he was talking about was Calvary. This was going to be a baptism of fire. And just as the water baptism marked the transition into the prophetic aspect of his ministry, so Calvary marked, if you like, the transition into the priestly role. In fact, it really began with his great high priestly prayer and the baptism of fire on Calvary's cross marked the culmination of his priestly role because, of course, The prophet wants to bring God to the people. The priest wants to bring the people to God. And to do that, sacrifice was required. And so on the cross, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact a baptism of fire. Uh, Just as the fire fell on uh, the sacrifice on Mount Carmel and consumed the sacrifice, so the fire fell upon calvary and of course like the burning bush although it fell it didn't consume the lord but he did give himself as an offering for sin and then three days later he rose again demonstrating that the sacrifice for sin had been accepted but this is what we can learn we can learn that this miracle was the beginning of a road It followed his water baptism down in Jordan, but it would eventually lead to the baptism of fire on Calvary's cross. And so I think we can learn much from that was the week that was. And we should be so grateful to our Lord Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. because he knew what lay ahead. Even as he began this ministry in Galilee at this wedding, and he gave the first demonstration of his power. He knew what would eventually happen. And the purpose of John's gospel is beautifully summed up in John chapter 20 and verses 30 to 31. And this is what we read. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. I'm certain that at the marriage in Cana, there were those who believed on him because of what they have seen and that they will be in glory and that they will join in the marriage supper of the Lamb which, as I mentioned last week, will also be a time of great rejoicing for us. Because you and I, as believers, we will be meeting our Lord face to face, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. But as well as that rejoicing, as I said last week, there will be the rejoicing that at that marriage, we will be reunited with friends and family who have gone on ahead who have died in Christ. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. May the Lord bless these thoughts to our hearts today.